This is episode 178 of That Shakespeare Life. Our show this week is brought to you in part by our members here at That Shakespeare Life. Membership gives you unlimited access to our video streaming library of documentaries, animated plays, virtual tours, and more. Sign up today at castycouch.com slash member and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Paul Edmondson, Head of Research for the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust and co-editor with Stanley Wells of the Shakespeare Circle and Alternative Biography. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. All paper in that period was not wood-based as our modern paper is, but was rag-based so that when you dampened it in water, it would always become quite pleasantly soft, which is what we like, of course, in our lavatory paper today. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. There may not have been indoor plumbing in Shakespeare's lifetime, but going to the bathroom still involved cleaning up. One aspect you may be surprised to learn you share with William Shakespeare is that he, too, used various kinds of paper to go to the restroom. Shakespeare's plays provide references to the Jakes, Jordan, and Chamberpot, all options for using the restroom in Tudor England. And it turns out we can also find a reference to what Shakespeare may have used in those restrooms for handling the necessary business in the lavatory as well. Our guest this week, Tiffany Stern, is here to share with us her research into the alternatives to paper that were often used as toilet tissue for early modern London. Tiffany Stern is a professor at the Shakespeare Institute at the University of Birmingham. She is an author, speaker, and historian. Her current work takes a look at plague history of early modern England to examine whether the phenomenon we witnessed during the COVID-19 outbreak of people scrambling to buy toilet paper was true of plague times for Shakespeare. In her research, she explores what materials might have been used for toilet paper in Shakespeare's lifetime, as well as the commerce and industry around the distribution of that product. Her recent projects include a book on early modern theater and popular entertainment, Playing Fair, Exploring the Cultural Exchanges Between Playhouses and Fairgrounds, a book on Shakespeare Beyond Performance, looking at the theatrical documents produced in light of a play's performance, ballads, chapbooks, commonplace books, noted texts, and an edition of Shakespeare's Tempest. Find links to a full list of Tiffany's works and publications, including previous episodes she's done here with us on That Shakespeare Life, all packed into the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Tiffany. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for inviting me. Anthony Wood in 1675 writes in a parliamentary petition that he found a particular piece of paper that he is presumably now displaying as evidence for this petition inside a, quote, privy house. Tiffany, please explain what a privy house is for the uninitiated. I think we recognize that privy associates it with a bathroom, but is this a formal structure for bathroom going? Well, it's a structure. A privy is well away from the house. 
So it's a whole different house in itself. And that's why it was called a privy house or a house of easement or a necessary house. But it's a little structure well, well away from where you live. And it is kind of a hole. Basically, it's it's a seat with a hole in it and your audio drops into, into a pit in the ground. And it's very, very smelly, extremely smelly. And and you yourself, even in that period, would worry because it's, as they didn't know the source of disease, um, one sort was maybe it came from bad smells and that was a very bad smelling place. So it was as well away from where you lived as possible and you went there as infrequently and as briefly as you could. In 1653, Sir Thomas Urquhart, I think I'm saying that correctly, I have no idea, but I will spell it for you in the show notes, but he wrote a French satire piece that goes into length about the details of cleansing oneself after going to the restroom. In that publication, he writes, quote, who his foul tail with paper wipes shall at his behind leave some chips, end quote. Paper fragments being left on your behind was an issue not just for the Charmin toilet paper commercials on TV today, but for Shakespeare's lifetime as well. Your cart goes on to suggest the neck of a goose as a better alternative. Tiffany, this example is satire and not to be taken too seriously, but it does beg the question of whether paper was the only option for wiping one's behind. Were non-paper options used as well? Yes, indeed. Non-paper options were used more frequently because they tended to be free, whereas paper you had to pay for. So what people would most usually use was something that grew around the privy. Grass was very popular or moss. You might try to encourage moss to grow around there. But other things were also used. Cabbage, dock leaves, and even mussel shells and bits of pottery, sort of scrapey things, though I don't like the idea myself. So, But the disadvantage of all those things is that they're somewhat seasonal. And it's bad news for you when your lavatory paper goes out of season or turns into hay, for instance, if it's grass, which is a lot more scratchy. So paper was the gold standard of what you really, really wanted in the lavatory. But because it cost money, it wasn't necessarily the most normal, regular thing to find there. With Mr. Wood's petition and subsequent display of the paper he found in the Privy House, are we to assume that his example demonstrates that official papers were used as toilet paper or that the Privy House was a great place to toss papers that you didn't want discovered? Due to what you said of the wanting to go there infrequently, the expectation was, oh, if I throw this thing I don't want anyone to find in there, then they won't go there to fish it back out. Which, which was it there? Well, a little bit of both. One is that, again, because paper's expensive, if you've read something and you're not going to read it again, it might as well be used as lavatory paper or for lining your pies or as a spill to light your pipe. You know, you had a lot of uses for waste paper. And that meant that things like a parliamentary petition, because it goes out of date quite quickly, that's exactly the kind of thing that you'd read once and put down the lavatory but other things you might read once and, and now you've read it, uh, you're not going to read it again, include things like plays, of course. So any literature thought of as ephemeral went round, went, could go down the loo as well. And in fact, basically anything could go down there that wasn't the Bible or, or sermons, which is why historically a lot more sermons have survived than unfortunately quartos of plays. Tiffany cites Alexander Brome from 1660, publishing a word titled bum fodder or waste paper proper to wipe the nation's bum with or your own, end quote. 
Tiffany, I'm going to assume there's a broader satirical message in that work based on the title, but we can infer from the title that the nation in 17th century England did indeed wipe their bombs with paper as a matter of course. Is that accurate? Well, of course, as you say, this this is a satire. But one of the jokes it is making is that it is saying it itself expects to end up down the lavatory. And certain bits of literature said that. What intrigued me particularly about this title, bum fodder, and and bum is still the English word for bottom. I think you more often say but, but (laughs) bum fodder. Not not in polite society, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) My apologies. Um, Bum has a a similar impolite resonance here. Okay. Bum is actually the nicer one here. So that's the one we say instead. Yeah. (laughs) Ah, I see. I see. Bum fodder. um, We still have the word, and and I don't know if you have it as well, the word bump, when you've got a a lot of random, you know, um, oh, yes, we have this word bump, and... I think people don't realise that it it is a shortened form of bumfodder. Um, we use it for, you know, junk mail, sort of pizza adverts and things. So kind of, uh, did I get any real post? Oh, no, just a lot of bump. That actually comes from bumfodder. But yes, there were particular texts that sort of relished the fact that they were going to end up down the lavatory and, and sort of taunted you with it. And that particular satire, which is on what was known as the rump parliament. Um, So it brings about a satire of its own. That's what that satire expects. That's interesting that they were using this cultural reality, I suppose, as a marketing ploy. (laughs) Please please read this because we know that this is where it's going. (laughs) Tiffany's research shows a woodcut by William Hogarth titled Masquerades and Operas from 1723 to 1724, where a woman is pushing a cart, calling out, waste paper for shops, and inside the wheelbarrow of goods she's peddling are several books, and one is notably titled Shakespeare. The humor in this artwork is apparent, but Tiffany, is there history in this engraving as well? Would peddlers be one place people would have purchased toilet paper in Shakespeare's lifetime, and were old books, like Shakespeare's plays, used for this purpose? Well, yes. (laughs) There were people who sold used and old paper for your general household needs, which, as I say, might include cooking needs and lighting fire needs, as well as lavatorial needs. And the old and used papers they they would um, sell would be any slow-selling books, ephemeral publications, and so forth. And here the joke is that great works of literature are now being used as trash. So that's so Hogarth is is sort of he's making a point about how little valued culture is. But at the same time, yes. Such old books, and as I say, I have reason to think quite a lot of Shakespeare plays did end up down the loop. Your other source, though, um, of lavatory paper was less good paper than the paper you printed at printed on, and that was known as brown paper and was made from hemp and old bags rather than the really good paper you printed on, which was made from linen. So you might also buy brown or common paper, which is cheaper for your lavatory. This does remind us, of course, that all paper in that period was not wood-based, as our modern paper is, but was rag-based, so that when you dampened it in water, it would always become quite pleasantly soft, which is what we like, of course, in our lavatory paper today. 
Tiffany's research identifies another interesting piece of evidence about the commerce of privy paper when she shares that Mathurin Cordier wrote in Cordierius Dialogues Translated Grammatically from 1614, so two years before Shakespeare died, that clean paper was not carried into the privy, but only paper that had already been written upon. Tiffany, why was clean paper not valued for the restroom? Well, it's not actually a case of value, but it's simply that clean paper is the most expensive paper because it is yet to be written on. I've mentioned already that good white clean paper was linen-based, but not only was it made from fine linen, but also it had very often had a treatment on the surface of it known as sizing or size, which is to say it had had a, a, a thin layer of gelatin put onto it, which would enable the ink to stand on top of it and not sink deeply into the paper like blotting paper. So that's expensive and fine paper, and you don't want it to go straight in the loo. You want to have used it first. So, But once a paper had been used, once you'd got manuscript all over it, now it's, as it were, worthless. Uh, you're not going to be able to write on it again. It's already been written on. So, manu- so good paper that was no longer clean, that had manuscript writing on it, that was destined to the lavatory, which is for the lavatory, which is the point I will return to. Are there references to toilet paper specifically in any of Shakespeare's plays? Yes, although interestingly, not many. That there are so many references to forms of lavatory in Shakespeare's play because we've only talked about one kind, the privy, the outdoor lavatory. But there were two indoor kinds: the chamber pot, also known as the Jordan or the piss pot, which could you could take to any room with you for peeing in. And that was particularly for peeing in more than pooing in. And the other form of indoor lavatory was called a closed stool, which was a chamber pot, but in a stool-like structure so that you could comfortably sit there. So Shakespeare refers to Jake's, which is an outdoor privy and privies. He refers to uh, closed stools and he refers to chamber pots and Georgians. But he only once, interestingly, refers actually to the paper. And that is in All's Well That Ends Well, where Parolis, he's been brought down by fortune and he makes a big fuss about how he's been demeaned and lowered by fortune. And then he says, pray you, sir, deliver me this paper, handing over a letter. And the clown says, oh, prithee, stand away, a paper from fortune's clothes stool to give to a nobleman, thus saying that he takes that letter to be uh, a bit of loo paper from a close stool. So that's the only time Shakespeare refers to the actual paper, which maybe shows that he's more interested in the vehicles than in what goes down them, or maybe shows he's not exclusively a user of paper. Was there any such thing as a toilet paper dispenser for Shakespeare's lifetime? Where was the toilet paper kept or or whatever they were going to use to go into the restroom? Did they have like a container where it was easy to get to when it was necessary in the home or perhaps in a public lavatory where it was put together for that purpose? Did they have containers? Public lavatories were largely yet to be invented. Generally, you, you had to get into, if, if you needed the loo, unless you were near the extraordinary public construction that Dick Whittington had set up in London, which had rows of lavatories for men and women. But unless you were near there, if you wanted a loo, you would have to get yourself into a shop, buy something and ask if you could use their their jakes. But yes, where was the actual 
paper kept? Well, that's an interesting question. If if one goes to historic lavatories these days, you sometimes find a sort of crevice or hole in the wall. And sometimes that is suggested that that's where you keep your paper or other materials. On the other hand, that might equally be the hole where you put your candle. So I think it's somewhat likely, actually, that you had a little box, because what's useful about the box is that you can vary the material in it between vegetation and paper. And even maybe you can take your pick or feel around what's in there and decide on the nicest thing. I mean, not least because even if you've got grass in there, you probably want to do a bit of examining of it because grass can have spiky, horrible bits, particularly before they had the fine lawns that we do. Uh, so yes, I suspect a box, but sometimes by lose there is kind of an, an, an intriguing hole. We've established that some paper was used for toilet paper in Shakespeare's lifetime. And I love knowing that it was linen-based instead of wood-based, which makes so much more sense when you're trying to think of you know, paper today. But where did this paper come from originally? What is the context of like printers and publishers of paper here to be the source of the toilet paper? Well, it isn't, you know, there's a, there's a huge story that's about the history of paper itself. But I'll tell you what interests me about printers and paper. And that is, of course, that most trades, the thing you deal in becomes a sort of freebie for you, doesn't it? So that if you're a grocer, you're likely to have some free vegetables. And if you're a butcher, you're likely to have some free meat. And when you think of a printer, what are some of the free perks that they printers are going to get? And one of the perks is clearly in a job that works so much with paper that they're going to get free loo paper and won't be reliant on seasonal vegetation. And then, and I'm now going to be speculative, but one of the things I think is interesting about the way printers printed is that printers, when they were given a manuscript that they were going to print, they marked up the manuscript to decide how much they were going to put on each page. And then they tore the manuscript up so that they could have above them in a sort of clipboard the bit of manuscript that they were then setting into print. So what is intriguing to me is that one of the leftover bit of used unclean paper that's definitely kind of uh, lavatory bound is going to be manuscripts that you have already printed up because you, you've done you've made the print text now. So the marked up and torn manuscript will be of no use to anyone, you might think. So, uh, and I'll tell you where I'm taking this. And that's that we often wonder what happened to Shakespeare's manuscripts, for instance. And I think we can say of any Shakespeare manuscript that found its way into the, the print house and was printed up, that manuscript will have ended up down the printer's loo. That's so shocking to me, like my mouth agape <laughs> at this idea. Why? Why would you throw away the ones that he had written? <laughs> so we need to go and, and archaeologically excavate all of the loos now because we know somewhere in there is Shakespeare's original manuscripts. <laughs> I doubt they're still pristine. <laughs> <laughs> no, it would be, uh, it would be an adventure to discover them there for sure. Oh, I know we would love to learn more about this topic. Tiffany, what are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? Well, you know, it's a funny one. So there are really good resources often online that give the history of lavatories. 
And then I'm going to give you two really interesting women who are writing about paper and 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 thinking about waste paper. And one is Anna Reynolds, who writes uh, a really good chapter, um, Worthy to be Resolved, Book Bindings and the Waste Paper Trade in Early Modern England and Scotland. And another is Helen Smith, who writes a unique instance of art, the proliferating surfaces of early modern paper. And those are both great. But what there isn't precisely that I have found is a really clear look specifically at early modern loo paper. And indeed, I wouldn't myself have gone there if it hadn't been for wondering why in a time of pandemic, everyone in their fear and horror dashed out to buy too much lavatory paper. (laughs) And I wondered if plague people did the same. It's just a product of plague. Everyone gets scared about the toilet paper. Yes. We ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life. And you, as a repeat guest here with us, get to choose either a new one or to refer back to your old one at your (laughs) preference. But what is the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Okay. Well, as I've got another chance, I'm going to add in another book, and I hope that eventually I'll have a whole collection of them there. <laughs> so I'll tell you what I'm thinking about at present, and that is how much we enjoy Shakespeare and how much other nations enjoy Shakespeare. But we're maybe not so good at ourselves enjoying, as it were, their Shakespeare's, the great writers of other nations. And what I've chosen, because um, I'm very fond of Poland, is that I think I'll have the complete works of Adam Mickiewicz, their great poet. And as I say, I'll I'll enjoy getting to know someone else's Shakespeare, and that's it. But, I I mean, I'd also like to do the same with other countries, but I get to start with Poland and slowly work my way through. (laughs) I think that is an excellent selection, for sure. You'll be well set up on your desert island library that you're building. (laughs) So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? There are two things I'm working on. One I may or may not have told you about, but I'll I'll start with the thing I definitely haven't told you about. So I'm working on the chronology of Shakespeare's plays, which is to say the order in which Shakespeare wrote his plays. And I'm looking at how that chronology was decided and sort of settled by Edmund Malone in the 18th century. We didn't have a, a chronology before then. And then I'm looking at both how amazing he was to come up with that and at how rubbish it really is if you look at his reasoning. And that's interesting because we, we've we roughly stuck to Malone's chronology, but it's very spurious, a lot of it. So I think we can really question quite a lot of the order in which we think Shakespeare's plays were written. So that's one thing I'm writing on. And another thing I'm writing on, which I may or may not have told you about, is ballads in the early modern period in Shakespeare's time and how Ballads were product placement in plays, and plays were sort of and plays were sort of promoting the sales of ballads, and ballads were promoting the sales of plays. So I'm looking at the the kind of product placement to and fro between those two different literary media. As a podcaster, I love this idea of seeing ballads as kind of the sponsorship audio of a play. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> Tiffany Stern, we are excited to have you visit with us again and share with us the history of toilet tissue and what that would have been like for William Shakespeare. This is a really fun conversation and we appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Find links to Tiffany's publications on toilet paper in Shakespeare's lifetime, as well as other resources she recommends, along with archival images about the various types of paper and the William Hogarth engraving we shared with you and the lady and her wheelbarrow, all packed into the show notes for today's episode. Find all these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 178. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP178. If you like the history of William Shakespeare and want to get even closer to the 16th and 17th century history we talk about here on the show, then consider becoming a member at That Shakespeare Life. Members get unlimited access to our entire video streaming library, including award-winning documentary films, animated plays, virtual tours, and more. You can also download our library of worksheets, lesson plans, and illustrated guides like diagrams, maps, and infographics that make understanding the history of William Shakespeare easy to see in full color and all printable from our exclusive resource library. Explore all the benefits of becoming a member and sign up today at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. I'll see you inside. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.